This is week number 44, not 43, Jackie. It's been, this is 44. That's true, good point, good point, good point. Um, and next week will be 45 for those that are counting. Um, this title for this message is Authority in the Millennium. So before I get to an introduction, I'm just going to say a couple of things. This idea of a thousand-year kingdom of God is an idea that's not found anywhere else in Scripture except for here in Revelation chapter 20. And throughout church history, there have been four main, you know, main interpretations of this thing called the thousand-year kingdom. And we're not going to name them all here. That probably could be something that we do maybe in a future Revelation grace group. That would be kind of fun, looking at all the different perspectives. Oh, okay, okay, well, you'll have to wait on that one. I'll be there. <laughs> sure you will. Here's the sad part about that. And it's very sad. It's very discouraging. These differing interpretations had led to significant division and conflict within the church. That is unacceptable. We're talking about people who will follow the Lamb wherever they go, who love Jesus and love the gospel, have different opinions on this thousand-year kingdom. Some have gone so far, on, in all four of these different interpretations, there are some in those four different camps who have gone so far as to brand those who dis disagree with them as heretics. I would imagine this grieves our Jesus tremendously. Because this passage, as we know the rest of Revelation, is supposed to have one main goal, to be a blessing to all who read it. Not fodder for argument. It's supposed to bring us joy and unity and purpose. So when we study this passage, those should be our primary objective. We must have humility and we must have charity as we approach this portion of Scripture. With that in mind, I just ask you a question or two. Have you ever felt powerless over something you can't control? Good, not just me. You're watching as this, as this scenario is playing out without anything you can do about it. You know that as you watch it play out, it's going to end badly, but you can't stop it. It's sort of like a bad Taylor Swift song in that respect, you know? <laughs> Don't get mad at me, Swifties. <laughs> All right. Well, let me just tell you, that's how Satan feels about this passage. Even with all his power and all his rage, he is watching as the kingdom of God advances and spreads throughout this age. He helplessly watches as us, the church, who he hates, by the way, has authority given from Jesus to proclaim the gospel to all nations. That's what we're learning about today. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, just in case you weren't sure who he was talking about, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not, and why was it sealed? So he might not deceive the nations any longer 
until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw, four th- then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony, or martyrs, the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who were still alive who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Little spoiler alert. Jesus says, who are the priests of God today? We are. So look at the history in this passage. There's a couple things I want to lay out for you about this idea of a thousand years. It's very important. The first thing I want you to see that we've seen this already, right, in Revelation, that there are these symbolic time frames all throughout. Understand something. When you read the book of Revelation, you cannot read it as chronological prophecies, one event after another, outlining all different types of things happening in order. Revelation is clearly written as seven different cycles. For example, we have already seen just in the the short 43 weeks we've gone through this, We have clearly seen six different perspectives and descriptions on the Battle of Armageddon. We've seen it several different times. It's clearly the same battle, but it's been described six different times. Each cycle has a different camera angle or a different perspective on everything that is happening throughout the church age. So understand, chapter 20 doesn't come chronologically after chapter 19. Chapter 20 actually starts the seventh and final cycle. Yes, we've arrived. Chapter 20 kind of zooms out on this entire church age, including Christ on earth, his second coming, and our eternal state. So that's the first thing I want to make sure that you understand. And remember, there's these symbolic time frames all throughout Revelation. Ancient poetic apocalyptic literature, especially Hebrew poetic and apocalyptic literature, say that one time fast, apparently. (laughs) These ancient languages regularly use different measures of time as metaphors. For instance, an hour or a day was frequently described as a metaphor for one individual's lifespan. Do you guys remember when we were talking about those kings that were given power for an hour? It wasn't literally 60 minutes. It was the time on their life or on this earth. Old Testament prophets, as they do here in Revelation, used weeks and months and years to represent longer periods of time. For example, Daniel's 70 weeks. It wasn't 70 weeks. It was longer than that. And this literary practice of using time frames as metaphors is throughout Revelation. For example, like I said, the kings that were given power for an hour or until they died. John does this in Revelation with hours, days, months, and years He does this to describe the tribulation, which he says in chapter 1 that what? We are all partners in. John's use of the number 1,000 follows that same exact poetic rhythm that we have seen throughout Revelation, just like with the other metaphors. It's a metaphor for an extended, long-lasting period, 
spanning numerous generations, earthly kingdoms, and ages. Like with the other examples, the precise duration of this kingdom of heaven wouldn't be the focus, but rather the nature of the kingdom that it is describing. John's readers would have regarded the millennium, and that word means thousand, as a portrayal of an entire church age, and I'll lay out that case for you. They understood that the primary purpose of this number was a description of the kingdom of God where Jesus rules with us, his redeemed. Then there's another colloquial historical application of this passage. I want to talk about this idea of thousand-year kingdoms. You know, Hitler tried to call his the thousand-year kingdom, the Third Reich. Throughout history, empires, both ancient and modern, have shared this common aspiration, this desire, this hope to be a millennial kingdom. This phrase represents the goal of any earthly empire. It's not about a literal lifespan. It symbolizes the desire to establish a legacy of power and authority and rule that can be passed down from generation to generation. It's as close as man can get to being immortal, even when he's, when he's gone. It symbolizes this desire for legacy and power and authority. A thousand years in the ancient world, and the ancient world was always used, when you talked about a thousand-year kingdom, it was always used as a metaphor for that type of accomplishment. For example, following the Babylonian captivity, Jews hoped for their own millennial kingdom to return, like the one that David and Solomon had started. They thought that one would last for a thousand years. It lasted for about 960. Their nationalism and their passion for their country resulted, sadly though, in misplaced earthly hope. They were hoping in an earthly kingdom, an earthly Messiah, rather than the kingdom of God, which Jesus said is now. Their hope was in the restoration of Israel's past glory, but this time it would really last forever. So that's some history for you to understand the use of these time frames and particularly this thousand-year time frame. I want to talk about the theology. There's, listen, there is, <clears throat> I've been really kind of anxious about this all week because there's so much just in these six verses. As a matter of fact, there's so much. Next, next week's passage is going to borrow verses 5 and 6 as part of its passage as well because there's just so much theology. But in this passage that we just read for you, John's vision contains three very crucial theological elements that have profound impact on the way we are living right now in this age today. The first one is that Satan is bound. The second theological concept is this. All the nations are allowed to come to Christ, at least those, the redeemed that live within them. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The scripture says people come from all of these. And then the third theological concept is this. The saints are given new life and they reign with Christ in his kingdom. Let's look at this first theological concept. I've called it kept in chains. You guys remember with Job how Satan would come before God accusing the redeemed? But not anymore. Here, God is no longer going to tolerate that accuser nonsense. Do you guys remember in Revelation 12, we actually studied this, where heaven rejoiced because the redeemed said, Satan has been cast from heaven. He can no longer accuse the brethren anymore. Chapter 20 is another camera angle on that event. An angel from heaven with a key 
and a chain seizes Satan and binds him. John's readers understood specifically from apostolic teaching in several places that this binding of Satan was not a future event, but it already happened. Look what Paul says in Jude chapter 6. And the angels who did not stay, past tense, within their own position of authority, but but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, see the similarity with Revelation, under gloomy darkness, sealed, until the day, until the judgment of the great day. There's about seven or eight passages in the New Testament. I just picked this one because nobody ever reads from Jude and I wanted to. Okay? (laughs) This, This binding of Satan, this casting, Satan being cast down from heaven is a significant spiritual moment that happened during the life of Jesus while he was on earth. More later, I'll remind you about this. It's a fascinating story. And why is he bound? Well, the scripture says in this passage, he was bound for a specific purpose in a specific way. And what was that? So he could no longer what? Deceive the nations. In chapter 12, John had another vision of Satan. Do you remember this one? He was waiting to devour the child, which is a metaphor for Jesus. But then the child is taken to heaven. And Satan is angry over his failure to destroy the child. So as John, in John's vision, he explains, he says, I saw the dragon turn his anger toward the woman, who we learned is a, is a metaphor for the first century apostolic church. And he wanted to destroy the woman right now, right then, before she could even get started. And she is whisked away to the wilderness. Do you guys remember that? And she was presented. Do you remember that image that John laid out in chapter 12? Satan turns his wrath because he can't get to the woman, the scripture says, toward the woman's offspring. That's the church throughout the church age. Remember, we talked about all this. So that's the first thing I want you to see. There's this Satan's ability, Satan's power is limited, it's bound, it's restrained, and he's cast down from heaven. But then there's the other theological concept I told you was in here. We come to life. So after this binding of Satan, John now describes in his vision that he sees the redeemed with authority reigning together with Christ. The kingdom has come. They are given life, he says. John calls it the first resurrection. And this theology of the first resurrection is throughout the New Testament. I mean, almost any book of the Bible you turn to in the New Testament, there are several mentions of the first resurrection. You want to know my favorite? Do you want to know my favorite? Okay, good, good. This is my favorite passage about the first resurrection. I love it. You who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Do you see the first resurrection? For by grace you have been saved. That's a really good passage. John is describing the redeemed who've been given a new life in Christ. Old man has passed away, all things become new. And he's describing these who have been given life as those who are in heaven, those who have already died and passed. He describes them as martyrs. And those who on earth, who are still actively resisting the beast's deception. I have taught you this concept all throughout Revelation. This is the church in heaven, which is the church in victory. And the church on earth, which is the church 
in battle. He's describing right here both elements of the church, those who have died and those who are still alive who have been given life through Jesus Christ. Both groups have been made alive and they reign with Christ in both places, on earth as it is in heaven. Wait a minute, does that phrase sound familiar? (laughs) Watch this. You're going to love this if you're a theological geek like me. Remember Jesus taught us how to pray for his kingdom, for his will to be done? He said concurrently, pray for my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want a little Greek this morning, just a little? The Greek word chi. It sounds like a fancy thing. I'll explain it to you. I'll break it down. A primary participle of cumulative force for an action or being. For example, also, even, and also, I love this word. I love this word. It's just so great. For example, we might use a primary participle of forceful cumulative action like this. I ran through the house and even also through the street. It takes one action and cumulatively applies it to more than one thing. Do you see that? I ran through a house, through is the participle, and also there's the, there's the modifying or the accumulative participle. I ran through the house and also through the street. You see that? That's what as it is is. It's a forceful cumulative We pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as well as in heaven. See, the millennial kingdom in chapter 20 is all those who've been given life. Those who have left the earth and those like us who are still here. It is the church in battle and the church in victory together with Christ in both places until the end of the age. Here's the next theological concept I told you about. It's power over evil. You know, we know Jesus has taught this, right? That his kingdom had already come. That its power was a reality for his disciples, and it is for us today. Look what he said in Luke chapter 17. I mean, this is a really difficult passage to deny. The kingdom of God isn't coming in ways that can be observed. Hmm. They will not say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. You know, John's readers also understood apostolic teaching about spiritual authority given to the church in this world. The first manifestation of the scope of this spiritual authority was when Jesus sent out his his apostles. There were two times he sent people out in pairs of two. The first one, he sent out the 12 in pairs of two and six couples. And later, he sent out 72 disciples in pairs of two. We've learned about this. Look what happens in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. After he sent them out, he said, I want you to go to these towns and these cities, and I want you to preach the gospel. And he says, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet, because it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those on that day when I return. So here's what he's saying. Preach the gospel. It will be both grace and mercy, but also judgment. Right? So they go out, and they do that, and look what happens. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, 
Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Boom. Satan bound. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is clearly authority given then to the church and now throughout the church age. It's kind of undeniable. I've given you power over demons and serpents. I saw Satan fall like lightning. They were sent to proclaim and display the spiritual authority of the kingdom of God in this world, which Satan was powerless against. It's the same power and authority that Jesus is going to equip us with later on at the end of the Gospels when he says the Great Commission is our job. He says, I'm with you always through the end of what? The age. This kingdom of God has come. And now Satan is powerless to deceive any of God's elect, no matter what nation, tribe, or tongue they are a part of. However, while he is bound in his ability to deceive the elect, he can still lash out and cause pain and suffering in this life. This is why John said that also at the same time, he said, we are partners in the kingdom of God. He said that. Then he also said, we are also partners together in the tribulation. Just like the wheat in the weeds. Clearly, there's two things happening at once. And Jesus patiently waits for his wheat to grow until all his elect are gathered and until the age ends. Until that time, Satan is bound And after Jesus has gathered all his redeemed and his church number is complete, Satan will be released for a little while. We're going to talk about that next week, not this week, because there's so much here. Satan will be released for a little while to gather what's left of the inhabitants of the earth, the weeds, for that final battle of Armageddon. Spoiler alert, we already know how that goes. We've talked about it a few times. All right. It's a lot of theology there, right? But I'm, I'm, I was hoping I was going slow enough to make sure you could connect the dots. Here's the personal section. I've titled this The Unstoppable Church. This was my sermon preview this week. If Satan could stop the kingdom of heaven from expanding, he would. But he can't. You know, this millennial kingdom authority that John wrote about It wasn't some future reality that was completely irrelevant to them. He wasn't giving them something that says, you know what? In thousands of years from now, there's going to be this kingdom, but sorry, you can't have a part in it. It was a reality for them, just as it is for us now. You know, at first glance, the world might see our claim of spiritual authority as arrogant. That Christians somehow have all the answers and we hold the spiritual authority in this world. And I I get that. But for us, as followers of Jesus, it's not a place of pride and arrogance. We know we haven't earned the right to this authority. It's an act of God's unstoppable grace. You know, it's very humbling how God delegates to sinners the authority over demons and serpents to preach the gospel and the kingdom of God. And why does he do it? Why does he bind Satan? 
Well, luckily for us, Jesus told us why. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Listen, man, this is like Jesus using some serious smack talk here, you know? He says, this is why I've bound Satan, clearing the way for you to go out into this world and harvest the souls that Satan wants to keep for himself. You know, there, it must be really, really frustrating for Satan, right? All spiritually tied up, watching helplessly as we, the church, brazenly plunder his house. Going all around the world preaching this gospel, God saving people, and he can't do anything to stop it. It must be frustrating for Satan to watch those whom the Spirit has marked for redemption being given ears to hear the gospel. It really must be frustrating for Satan to watch helplessly as we go out and go about our kingdom business with the power of the gospel because we are not ashamed of the power of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to salvation. And as much as he might want to stop what we are doing, he can't. He is bound, he's powerless, he's helpless, and he is seething in anger over it. He's like a rabid lion on a short leash. And the children of God that have ears to hear, like, for example, if you're here today and a follower of Jesus, you are undeceivable. Look, I don't even know if that's a real word, but it sounds great, doesn't it? I'm undeceivable. It's incredibly comforting if you think about it this way. Matter of fact, Jesus explained this idea of being undeceivable. He says in John 10, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand or out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Satan is unable to snatch us. He is bound. So while Satan is bound and the church is freely going throughout the world with this uncanny spiritual power and authority to proclaim and preach the gospel, the kingdom of God keeps us commanding. It has for thousands of years. And Satan is helpless, watching, chained up as one by one, every one of God's elect are marked and redeemed for eternity. There goes another one. There goes another one. That one was just out of reach, but I couldn't get to that one. I couldn't get to this one. I, could, I can't get to any of them. He's helpless. As God fulfills his plan of redemption for all those, he says that he has loved since when? Before the foundation of the world. And so Satan's left with one option to inflict as much earthly suffering and persecution on the offspring of the woman, the church, us, as he possibly can. That's why John said in chapter 1, we are all partners in both the kingdom of God, but also partners together in the tribulation. But just like with Job, the suffering Satan brings against the church can only go so far. What did God say? You can touch Job, but you can't kill him. Satan has been put on a short leash. Despite his hatred and war against the church in battle throughout this church age, we endure this tribulation till Jesus returns. And even though he rages against us, the offspring of the woman, we are sealed. 
He cannot spiritually kill us. And in the end, his persecution will miserably fail. He will never, not one time, according to the promise by our Jesus, not one time will he ever convince the redeemed to be ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why? He's given us ears to hear and know that it is the authority of God for salvation, but also judgment. See if you can tie all of this together with the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Go back. Here we go. Go there and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And look at this last part. I love it. Behold, I am with you always, together, ruling and reigning with you. How long? Till the end of the age. Boom. In what age did Jesus say we would have this authority? In what age did he say that he promises to be with us till the end of it? It is the kingdom of God that is in our midst. During this age, as Satan is bound, we exercise this spiritual authority over all the nations throughout the world as we proclaim the power of the gospel. And through the power and authority of the gospel, we get to participate with God's spirit as he speaks to his chosen people. Throughout this time, the power and authority of the gospel we get to proclaim is also hope, but also judgment. Whenever this gospel is proclaimed, it always brings back, this is the promise, all the riches of redemption it was meant to bring back and all the consequences of judgment it is meant to bring back. For those without ears to hear the gospel, it will seem foolish. Sadly for them, it becomes our authority for their judgment. That's why he said, if they don't hear you, shake the dust off your feet. But for those who have been given ears to hear, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's a new life. It's resurrection. You were dead. And what happened? He made you alive, and now you reign with Christ through this heavenly kingdom that is in your midst. And as we take the gospel to every tribe and every nation, the forces of darkness are powerless to stop the gospel's purpose and progress. And Satan watches angrily, his hands tied behind his back, as the Father uses us. Sinners saved by grace to harvest the rest of his redeemed throughout the age. Church, this theology is why we know that we can boldly remain faithful and follow the lamb. How often? Wherever he goes. Even in this life of tribulation. Because our Jesus has granted us spiritual authority in the kingdom of heaven. He has promised to be with us until the end of this age. Jesus, sometimes we forget the authority you've given us to preach the gospel. Sometimes we forget the power of the gospel for salvation, grace, mercy, but also judgment. We get distracted by proclaiming other things, sports, politics, money. Those things don't have the power for salvation. 
You have equipped us with a message that makes the demons tremble because they are powerless to stop it. We are thankful as the gospel goes out, it will always accomplish everything that it's supposed to. Lord, we recognize that while Satan can cause us earthly harm, he is powerless to stop the harvest of your souls. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming us, bringing us to life. And as you said in the Great Commission, you've equipped us with authority. So, Lord, in humility, we ask that you help us to remember these things as we go out with the power of the story of redemption. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go with kingdom authority and power.